Welcome, everybody, to History uh, 327, uh, 1945 to present. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, I'll give you a second to go into Moodle and get the PowerPoint today. Today, we're talking about the end of the Cold War. I believe this one's going to be shorter than some of my earlier ones, mainly because this one's so dependent upon Gaddis, which you are reading and you're going to be talking about, and you're going to be writing that book report for. So I will give you a second to go get the PowerPoint. All right, good. Everybody's ready to go. I've got my water here. I've got a Dotson in my lap and the Corgi's around here somewhere. So if you go over one slide, you will see a picture of the first Bush. Look, he's even hold up one figure to know I'm the first Bush. Uh, this is George H.W. Bush. Uh, by the end of 1988, Reagan is still popular, but it's pretty evident that his presidency is waning. Um, Reagan does a pretty good job of fading in his last years of the presidency. Uh, does a pretty good job of kind of stepping aside. Uh, we later find out he actually has Alzheimer's. We don't know how bad it was when he's president, but when he's not president, it's noticeably bad. Still, his legacy is strong enough that his vice president, uh, George H.W. Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, is an easy pick for the Republicans to go for, for president. Now, Bush is a career Cold Warrior. Uh, pretty much his entire career has been based around the Cold War. Uh, he fought in World War II. He's a World War II soldier. I believe he's a pilot of some sort, actually, in World War II. I know he plays college ba baseball. He used to get involved in the College Baseball World Series. Um, Bush is originally from Maine. Actually, I think he was born in Massachusetts, but he, he spent most of his young life in um, Kenny Bunkport, Maine, which is just uh, Maine. However, as a young man, he moves to Texas. He moves to Texas. If you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of him on the right, working in the oil fields of West Texas, uh, near Odessa, Midland. He even makes an oil company. He gets pretty rich, actually. He gets uh, fairly fairly wealthy as an oil baron or oil tycoon, I suppose you would say, over in Texas. He joins the Republican Party uh, mainly because of the small government thing. It's still the, uh, it's the 50s and 60s in this time period. Uh, Bush is you know, urged by the Democrats of Texas to become a Democrat. However, he becomes a Republican mainly because of the small government thing, uh, becomes a congressman for Texas. He's in the House of Representatives. Uh, later becomes the U.N. ambassador for the United States. He's chairman of the Republican National Committee. Uh, he's director of the CIA. And he does all this stuff before becoming Reagan's vice president in 1980. Uh, remember, he runs against Reagan in 1980, trying to get the Republican nomination. Uh, it's a fairly... He, he puts up a fairly strong showing in 1980. And so pretty much as you can see, Bush has had a pretty uh, varied career set, um, but a lot of it is government adjacent or getting involved with the government. Now, he is the early front runner in 1988. Uh, he is the vice president. It's an early, easy front runner. He has a decent challenge from Bob Dole. Uh, Bob Dole, he's a longtime uh, Kansas senator. Uh, he's also a World War II veteran like Bush. Uh, does not have as extensive experience with all sorts of different things as Bush has. Uh, Dole's pretty much just been a uh, congressman, uh, well, senator, I should say, from Kansas. Um, Gore, not Gore, sorry, woo, Dole. Dole would later become the Republican nominee in 1996. So, you know, eight years after this, Dole becomes a nominee. Uh, the other weird strong, by the way, that is uh, my Dotson growling in the background. That is not my tummy or not me growling. Just, Molly, be quiet. 
the other one who does a pretty strong, a decent challenge, actually gets a f- more votes in Iowa than Bush does, is Pat Robertson. Uh, Pat Robertson, as you may recall from last week, he's part of the uh, evangelical movement. He's the head of the 700 Club. He, Molly, shut up. Sorry. He is running for president in this time period, and he actually gets a decent percentage of the vote early on. Uh, however, Bush has the machinery, the stronger New Hampshire, pretty much sweeps Super Tuesday. Um, in a sense, you could argue, you know, I might get in trouble for this argument, but why not? It's kind of similar to what's going on right now with Joe Biden and the Democratic nomination. Uh, Biden was Obama's vice president. Uh, Biden wasn't the front runner early on. Uh, you know, early on it was pe- people like Buttigieg, um, who did really well in Iowa. Sanders is very well in Vermont. Uh, sorry, New Hampshire. Well, Sanders is from Vermont. But as time goes on, kind of the establishment, I don't want to say the establishment candidate, but yeah, the establishment candidate gets it. Uh, he's a very centrist candidate. And that's one thing you need to know about Bush. He's very centrist. Uh, there is a sense after Reagan, because Reagan has argued so much for deregulation, you know, why should the government exist? Uh, Bush is kind of one of the people who's like, you know what? No, the government should exist. Uh, there should be the government for some form or fashion. I mean, if everything's going to be deregulated, why are we fighting so hard to become president? What's the point of the federal government? We need to exist in some in some area. Um, he also argues for what he calls a kinder, general, kinder, gentler America, a kinder, gentler nation, uh, seemingly to rebuke the hard right conservatives who want a more combative stand against the Democrats and the more liberal policies. Uh, they don't want they don't like liberal policies. Uh, there's a sense that, you know, you want a combative president. Uh, they view the, uh, the opposition as the enemy, they view the other party as the enemy. That's not Bush. He's like, you know what, I want a kinder, I want a gentler America. Uh, you know, we don't go up against too hard against anybody. However, one thing he is strong against in this first campaign is taxes. Uh, Bush really takes Reagan's line against taxes. Uh, he tells the Republican National Convention, you know, uh, Dukakis says he's going to raise taxes on the third or fifth exor- resort, but you know if he's already talking about it, he's definitely going to want to raise taxes. That's not what I'm going to do. Congress is going to tell me to raise taxes. I won't raise taxes. And I'll tell them, we all know the line, read my lips. No new taxes. Uh, he kind of emulates Clint Eastwood with that line. Uh, it's kind of a variation of a dirty, hairy line. Uh, does he need to do this? Is this a mistake? Well, it sure wasn't needed. And it doesn't really help Bush when later on in his presidency, he does indeed have to raise taxes as part of the recession. So, uh, Something I do need to mention is his running mate. If you go over one more, you'll see uh, George Bush and Dan Quayle. As you notice, Dan Quayle's a little bit younger. Uh, Quayle is picked as a more conservative member. Remember, uh, Bush is very centrist. Uh, Quayle is picked on to kind of appease the hard right people. Um, he's also a little bit younger, kind of a piece of hard right. Uh, Quayle, anything you need to really mention down, down Dan Quayle? What well, is kind of funny in this time period, uh, Quayle gets kind of known because um, there, there's a thing with a school child, and he, he's like, oh, you misspelled potato, and he put an E at the end of potato, because if you know, the plural of potatoes is ES, and I guess Dan Quayle thought that the singular of uh, potato had an E at the end, so it's kind of funny. Uh, the guy that he is running against is Michael Dukakis. Michael Dukakis is the governor of Massachusetts. Uh, in this time period, Massachusetts is hailed as the most liberal state in the country. I guess kind of 
like how California is now. Uh, now it's like, oh, those Massachusetts liberals. Uh, Dukakis was the governor of Massachusetts. Um, he does talk about possibly raising taxes. Another thing he does, well, not that he does, but uh, the tack ad that Bush runs against him that's fairly effective is the Willie Horton ad. If you go over one slide, you'll see a frame from the Willie Horton ad. Uh, Willie F Horton was a prisoner. He was a felon. And he was put out on furlough. And while he was on furlough, uh, he raped a woman. And the accusation is that basically, you know, Dukakis runs his prisons like a, like a, like a revolving door. You know, he's soft on crime. He's letting people get raped, this sort of thing. Uh, there might be some racial undertones to it. Uh, Willie Horton was indeed a black man. And if you see the pictures I have of Willie Horton, if you Google around or whatever, you will see they frame him fairly scarily. Um, but that's that. Uh, Bush does have a fairly easy victory. Uh, he sweeps the South. This is a big deal. Uh, yes, Reagan was able to get the South, but that was viewed mainly upon Reagan's personality. Okay? Reagan had a lot of charisma. Reagan was a great speaker. Reagan had a lot of great personal appeal. And he was able to get the South. Bush is able to get that without that. This showed that the South was going uh, for the Republican Party. Uh, more with ideas than just personality. You know, possibly there's something about the South in Republican politics which is resonating more deeply. Now, it's interesting because Bush, Bush was very happy to be seen with Reagan on the campaign. Reagan campaigned with Bush. Uh, in fact, that's the first time I ever saw Bush and Reagan. I was about four years old. I was living in Arkansas. I remember my parents made a really big deal. They weren't really that political, per se. But uh, Bush and uh, Reagan were coming to Little Rock for a campaign speech. And I remember my parents making a really big deal about, oh, we have to go to the airport uh, so you can see the president. You know, it'd be an interesting thing to see the president. And I, I vaguely, I mean, like I said, I was four. I don't have too many memories of this day, but I remember standing and, and seeing a man like, gosh, like three or four football fields away, it felt like. It probably wasn't that far. You know, I, I could see, oh, look, there's there's the president. I, I suppose Air Force One was behind him. That's pretty cool, actually. Uh, there's pictures of it. There's pictures of me there um, somewhere in my parents' house. I guess that's there. Uh, but still, the thing is, there's a huge charisma gap. Bush has never been a great speaker. Um, he's not. Likewise, uh, Bush kind of infamously says he doesn't have any real plans or schemes uh, you know, no real big grand visions for the world because he, quote, lacks the vision thing. Uh, now, that in of itself is not bad. You know, the fact that he is a very practical guy, he's arguing that he's, I'm a very practical president, I'm a very, you know, just go with what works type of president. That's a huge stark difference from Reagan. You know, Reagan's all about the ideas, all about the ethereal. Uh, Bush, not so much. Bush is just kind of his own dude. He's seemingly okay with the status quo. Uh, Bush is very cautious with the Russians when we get into it. Um, it kind of reflects on his career as a Cold Warrior, but it's a very different animal than you have with Reagan. Anyway, go over one slide. You'll see Bush does indeed win the, uh, win the White House. There he is being inaugurated. Uh, there he is with his wife, Barbara. Uh, Barbara Bush is fun. I like Barbara Bush. She's, she's just a fun, fun lady. I was sad when she passed away, but she's, she's uh, tough as nails. Uh, she's a, she, I just like it, Barbara Bush. She's fun. So as president, uh, Bush is actually quite cautious when dealing with the Russians. Uh, for instance, he waits a full three months after he's inaugurated before he officially contacts Gorbachev, which is interesting because, you know, you'd think the 
president of the United States and the and the leader of Russia, well, the U- leader of the USSR, would have plenty to talk about. Uh, however, Bush uses that time to kind of study Gorbachev, study the Soviets. He is not a fan of the Russians. Don't get this wrong. He's not like okay with the Russians. He's remember he's a Cold Warrior. He wants he wants to move what he says beyond containment and to possibly ending the Cold War. But he doesn't want to rush in anything. That's his that's his main thing. Bush is a cool, calculating person. Calculating well, maybe not calculating, but he's not going to rush into anything. He wants to make sure that nothing too radical happens. He recognizes, although the Soviet Union may be on the downturn, you know, maybe, you know, Gorbachev is making all these reforms, there's still a dangerous force. They still have nuclear weapons. He's not Reagan. He's not calling the Russians evil. He's not saying, you know, tear down this wall or talking about space lasers to shoot down missiles. He is a different animal altogether. Now, Gorbachev responds uh, by continuing his reforms and actually not paying too much attention to Bush. Gorbachev really doesn't do that much with Bush. He doesn't really feel the need to talk to Bush too much. Um, as Bush is being kind of cautious and, and wary of Gorbachev, Gorbachev doesn't take it too personally. Gorbachev's like, fine, whatever. I'm just going to keep continuing what I'm doing. Now, the Russians have something known as the Brezhnev Doctrine. Uh, Brezhnev. I don't have that written down. Sorry, I don't. B-R-E-Z-H-N-E-F. Brezhnev Doctrine which is kind of their parallel to the Truman Doctrine. Remember, the Truman Doctrine was, if you resist communism, we will support you no matter what the cost. Uh, The Brezhnev Doctrine says pretty much that once a country is under Soviet sway, it stays under Soviet sway. This has pretty much been something the Soviets have been doing since the 60s. Like, once a country comes over Russian influence, they don't leave under Russian influence, even if the country doesn't want Russian influence. Uh, This is probably most starkly shown in 1968, whenever the Russians send tanks into Prague. Uh, The Czechs and Czechoslovakia are kind of having their own little reforms. They're trying to kick out the Russians. Uh, The Russians respond by sending tanks, by pretty much crushing the rebellion. The idea being that even though the Czechs are in of themselves trying to get rid of communism, get rid of the Soviets, the Soviets don't allow that. But the thing is, Gorbachev is starting to resend the doctrine. Now, he does this kind of quietly first in Afghanistan. As you recall, last class, the Russians do invade Afghanistan. The U.S. responds by arming the Mujahideen, who later becomes the Taliban. Well, parts of which become the Taliban. Uh, Gorbachev pulls out, of, pulls out of Afghanistan very quietly. That's not very shocking. Um, it, it, maybe not shocking is not the word I'm looking to it, but that's not too surprising. You know, the, a- Afghanistan was a quagmire for the Russians. They really weren't getting that much headway there. So the fact that they're pulling out is not that surprising. What is surprising is when he directly states that the Soviet satellite states, so all those Eastern European countries, they should seek their own path to Proshtika, which, remember, that is reform. Uh, they should try to re, re, you know, revitalize themselves their own way, and that the USSR, quote, has no political or moral right to interfere in the events of these countries. That's crazy. For the Soviets to say, we have no right to interfere with the affairs of another country, that is pretty much undermining the entirety of the Cold War. Remember, the Cold War in and of itself is proxy conflicts. It's the U.S. and Russia exerting their control on foreign countries so they don't directly fight each other. And now, Gorbachev is saying, hey, Russia, we should abandon 
pretty much our main and only tactic. That is shocking. Uh, it's most keenly felt in Hungary and Poland, which is kind of going undergoing their own long-term solidarity movements and union movements. But still, this is surprising. Now, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see how it gets really surprising. The Berlin Wall had stood for nearly three decades. I believe it's like 28 years or something like that exactly. As a physical reminder of kind of an otherwise ethereal mental conflict. You know, the, the Cold War's main symbol is the Berlin Wall. In fact, the splitting of Berlin was kind of the, the opening shots of the, of the Cold War. Now, there are indeed checkpoints and gates between uh, East and West Berlin along the Berlin Wall. However, they are very highly controlled by the East Germans. The East Germans are not really letting anybody across the uh, border. Uh, people have died. Actually, a decent number of people indeed died over the length of the Berlin Wall's existence trying to cross it. Uh, the only people who are allowed to go over uh, across the border are like, you know, if you have like not even family. It was, it was very restricted, incredibly restricted. But in November of 1989, it, things start to change. Uh, there have been refugees trying to come over from different areas. Uh, there are paths to get to West Berlin. They're kind of convoluted if from East Berlin. For instance, if you're from East Berlin, you can go to Czechoslovakia, which is theoretically an ally of um, of the communist government in charge of East Germany. And from Czechoslovakia, you're able to go into West Berlin because of a diplomatic thing. It's, it's very convoluted, but it, it's, it's kind of going up. And on, on November 9th, 1989, the East, the, the, the government in charge of East Germany, the Pol the East German Politburo had kind of said, Hey, we're going to relax some regulations. They're going to do it orderly saying that basically, we're going to let more people go across the border. You don't need to have relatives or like any real restrictions on it. They're pretty much saying we're going to unrestrict some, we're going to loosen some restrictions. And so the party boss of East Berlin goes on TV, kind of reads us out. Um, I recommend Googling it. It's kind of fun. The, this, the speech where he's basically like, hey, uh, you can go across the border. Uh, we're, we're not really requiring anything. And somebody asks, well, when is this going to begin? And the guy kind of looks at his papers and he's like, well, as far as I know, like right this second, right now, this sets up a firestorm. Like this goes completely crazy. Because this causes a rush from people in Berlin. This gets picked up by the news in both East and West Berlin. The, the mayor of West Berlin declares, you know, we've unified the city. It's over. It's a very happy day. Uh, people are like just going over the border. Um, the East German troops are like, well, ordinarily we'd shoot them, but there's so many of them and they're getting all these conflicting reports from their different, uh, from the different people, you know, their different leaders. And so eventually they just like, they just let them go through. And so on one night, all of a sudden, everybody is crazy happy. There's a lot of joy. If you go over one more slide, a lot of joy, a lot of jubilation. A lot of mirth. It seemed that some of the scars from World War II were gone. Maybe Germany would have become unified as a country, not just as a city. Um, it was something that, you know, this has been around for almost 30 years. For almost 30 years, the Berlin Wall had been in existence. You know, about a month later, um, for New Year's Day, New, sorry, New Year's Eve, David Hasselhoff comes. You can Google that video. If you've had me for 256, you probably let me show you that video. They start literally tearing down the wall, like bringing sledgehammers and junk to it. 
At first, it's just the ease of restriction, but then like, hey, if, we're, if, if you can just go through the wall anytime you want, why do we need a wall? And so they literally start tearing down the Berlin Wall. Sections do still exist. Um, in fact, oh, God. Last time I was in Washington, D.C., uh, this is another one of the list of things I've touched I probably shouldn't have. We were at some government building, and they just had a giant section of the Berlin Wall there. I want to say it was like the Reagan governmental building. That sounds about right. Um, and there's just a big section of the Berlin Wall, and I was touching the mess out of it. I was like, wow, it's a Berlin Wall! And then I saw a sign in a polite security card that said, don't touch the Berlin Wall. So, if you're keeping score, that's uh, yet another thing that I've touched that I shouldn't have. That's up there with, uh, let's see, things I've touched that I shouldn't have. Uh, the Rosetta Stone, Code of Hammurabi, Prince Charles, Moon Rock, Berlin Wall, and probably some other stuff in two that aren't coming to the top of my head off right right this second. But anyway, so that is a big surprise. Um, this takes Bush by surprise, clearly by surprise. Um, he actually had expand, uh, expected a much longer slow burn uh, the day after this. So that'd be November 10th. You know, they, they go to Bush, the reporters go to Bush, and they want him to like give some like crazy gloaty statement. He's very subdued. He's like, so, they're like, so, you know, President Bush, have you heard about what happened in Berlin? He's like, yeah, I heard about it in Berlin. That's pretty nice. They're like, really? That's pretty nice? He's like, yeah, you know, it's cool. They're like, so do you think the, the Iron Curtain is down? He's like, well, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's down, but it's one of the better days for us in the Cold War. Like, he's not being jubilant. He's not being uh, gloaty. And that's something he is doing on purpose. He recognizes that, remember, that's, that's Bush's entire character. It's kind of cool, kind of, kind of calculating. He knows that things are going to be very sensitive with the Russians and Gorbachev after this. You know, if he looks too jubilant, if he looks too triumphant, um, he thinks that there might be backlash. Uh, if anything, knowing what I know about this and, you know, reading up on Bush, I think Bush was confused. <laughs> I think Bush was scared that there might be a backlash or it might be a trap. And if he, if he acted too jubilant, um, it might be a trick or something. But if you go over one slide... You'll see more things are about to go America's way. In fact, a lot's about to go America's way. Uh, more communist regimes start to fall. For instance, go over one more slide. In Poland, uh, Poland democratically elects members of the Solidarity Movement over the communists. They literally have a democratic election in Poland. Poland, which, as you recall from like the first day of class, was Winston Churchill's major sticking point back at Yalta 40-something years earlier, almost 50 years earlier, well, 44 years earlier, uh, he wants democratic elections in Poland. They finally happen. Uh, Lech Walisa is elected president of Poland. He's a very fitting pick. He was the uh, head of the Solidarity Movement, which had been kind of resisting the communist government for about 10 years now. Um, he's still alive. He's still alive. I've always wanted to meet him. He's a nice, he's a nice guy. I, I love his mustache. Uh, Google Lech Walisa's mustache. You will see all sorts of amazing mustaches. In uh, Hungary, which had kind of been going through some reforms itself, Reformers uh, declare the Third Hungarian Republic, which reestablishes ties to Western Europe pretty quickly. Um, in, in Romania, Romania is interesting, because in Romania, Nicolae Kroșescu, uh, I can never pronounce his name, Kroșescu, he was, I've never talked about him before, he is kind of the like embodiment of bad communist dictator. Uh, he had been in control of Romania for quite a while. He's he's awful. He does all sorts of horrible things, genocides, repressions of his people. 
Uh, he is put on trial by the Romanians, and he is executed. Uh, he is executed by him. And this is happening very quickly. This is all within a space of a year or something. And the one that gets people kind of really jazzed up, if you go over one slide, is Germany. There is talk of German unification, and possibly that all of Germany could join NATO as a single country. It has been East and West Germany for like 40-something years by this point. Remember, the Berlin Wall wasn't only erected until the 60s. Germany had been divided into East and West you know, Germany since right after World War II. Now, this is seen as potentially scary. Why might this be seen as scary, Tully? Wow, that was a really high-pitched voice. Why might this be seen as scary? Well, remember World War II, you know? That, that thing where, like, Germany was strong and unified and, like, killed everybody and, like, the Holocaust happened and, like, you know, the Soviets got 20 million people killed and, uh, you know, France was occupied and Britain had to do all that stuff? Yeah. There's a lot of shell shock. There's a lot of PTSD in like France and England and pretty much everybody who borders Germany about what's going to happen if Germany is reunified. If a German reunification, what's going to happen? And so there's this this idea. There's this very strong effort put in that German reunification has to happen slowly. It has to happen very slowly. It has to happen not to alarm anybody. There can be no talk of memories of earlier times, no talk of German strength, no talk of, like, you know, great German nationalism or German superiority, uh, which is something a bit different when it comes to making a nation. Uh, generally, whenever countries come together, there's a lot of talk of, like, oh, we have a great ancestry, or we're such a strong people, you know, we're, we're better than everybody else. Uh, think about how Germany came together in the first place. Uh, Germany comes together in the first place uh, because of a unification of by Bismarck of Prussia and all the other little Germanic states, uh, and it's been crushed into this little Germanic space because Napoleon and the Holy Roman Empire, and just the idea of a strong central Germany has been something that's kind of scary uh, throughout European history. Now, this is something where Bush's calm demeanor comes in handy because a more a motive president would have made a big deal about appointing a strong German chancellor or like, well, he didn't get to appoint the German chancellor, but just like saying how great this is, how this is kind of a, uh, you know, thumb in the eye of the Russians. Bush doesn't do that. Uh, Bush is very subdued. Bush is very calm about his all. Uh, Helmut Kohl, who is Kohl, who is the first president of the unified Germany. Uh, they're both really pretty low key. They, you know, they, they, they're, they're doing this so slow. They're doing this so, you know, the German people are happy to be reunified because having their country split in two sucked. But I got to give it to Bush and, and Cole for this one. They do a really good job of just kind of keeping it calm, collected, doesn't really upset anybody. They do things like having like one German team for the Olympics and stuff like that. And that seems a really big deal. I remember when that happened, that was a huge deal. Um, so whenever Germany does again unify in October of 1990, it's subdued. It's pretty chill. And that in of itself should have ended the Cold War. It could have ended the Cold War. I wouldn't say should have, but it could have. Remember, the Cold War begins with Germany being split in two. Now Germany's reunified. The Cold War theoretically could be over. You know, let the Soviets do their own thing. Let the communists have their own country as long as they're not, you know, remember, the U.S. existed with the Soviet Union as a nation like during World War II and World War I and the Great Depression, you know, the Soviet, the Soviet Empire, wow, the Soviet Union came together in 1917. 
And there's about a, you know, almost 30-year period where the U.S. wasn't really at war with him. So theoretically, we could have had peaceful coexistence with the Soviets. That doesn't happen. Because something bigger is about to happen. Now, Gorbachev, as, you know, I've talked a lot about his reforms, how he's a kind of different chancellor. Um, He is, different premier, not chancellor, he is not popular with the hard line communist in Russia. All these reforms for Gorbachev, they're not popular with a lot of like the hard line super communist people. They think he is undermining everything in Russia's power. And to be fair, Russian power had been undermined. Uh, even ordinary Russians had felt that Gorbachev was unilaterally surrendering everything the Soviets had gained during World War II. Now remember, you got to go back. How much did the Soviets suffer during World War II? 25 million people died. 20 million soldiers, 5 million civilians. 62.5 soldiers for every one American soldier killed. The Soviets had lost so much. Stalin wants security. And Gorbachev is unilaterally giving stuff up. And I think that's the thing that offends most Soviets. It's not that he's giving it up. It's unilaterally. He's getting nothing in return. The U.S. is doing more saber-rattling. The U.S. is not dismantling nuclear weapons. The U.S. is not pulling out of other countries. The Soviets are doing this all by themselves. So it should come as no surprise if you go over one more. There is a coup. There's an attempted coup by the hardline communists in the summer of 1991 against Gorbachev. Uh, it's while Gorbachev is on vacation near the Black Sea. He leaves Moscow. Basically, he is thrown into jail. And in Moscow, the, uh, the communists kind of set up uh, troops to take out any protesters that might happen against it. Now, they are expecting most of the Russians would kind of like be on the side of these hardliners. Uh, that doesn't happen. In fact, this coup falls apart almost immediately, thanks in large part to what happens in Moscow. You see, the troops are not expecting that much resistance, but a lot of resistance comes. Uh, this actually could have been Gorbachev's like brightest hour, finest hour. It's, it, it's not. It's given to the guy seen on the left in the gray suit. That's Boris Yeltsin. Uh, Boris Yeltsin has been recently elected president of the Russian Republic. Okay, let me try to explain this just for a hot second. This is the largest subsection of the USSR. Theoretically, the Soviet Union is a collection of other states. Of little states led by the Soviets, but they theoretically have their own presidents. Boris Yeltsin is the president of the largest one of these, which is Russia. Um, it's I know I've been using Soviet and Russia interchangeably throughout this entire class. All you need to know is Boris Yeltsin had been mayor of Moscow for a while, and now he is president of the of Russia. Now, for many years, this had been a puppet. This had just been a stuffed shirt. The Soviets were in charge of everything. Theoretically, Russia had a president, but he means nothing. But Yeltsin goes a little bit differently. Yeltsin goes to the troops. You know, he goes in front of the protesters. He literally climbs on top of a tank. As you can see, this picture is on top of a tank. If you look, ah, ah, if you zoom in on this picture, if you can, if you zoom in, you will see that is a tank. There's a soldier with his you know, head in his hands. Uh, basically, and they're holding the flag of Russia. That's the independent Russia, not the USSR. Basically, Yeltsin dares the, uh, dares not the reporters, dares the soldiers to shoot him in front of reporters. They're like, you're not going to do this. You know, this. you cannot just take this over. And they actually stand down. And although Gorbachev comes back 
Yeltsin is ascendant. Yeltsin is looking like the leader of this. Um, whenever the Soviet Union does indeed uh, quietly slip out of existence in 1991, late, late 1991, I believe it's December of 1991, pretty much for the new year, uh, Gorbachev very quietly kind of says, all right, I'm dissolving the Soviet Union. And it's very anticlimactic. Uh, the president of this new Russia, this new non-Soviet Russia, is Boris Yeltsin. Not a surprise. Uh, go over one more slide. You'll see. <laughs> I love this picture of Boris Yeltsin. Look at him smiling with the alcohol. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, you know what? I'm going to make you stop me right now. Stop me right now. Stop me right this second. And I want you to go to Moodle, and I want you to watch the video that says Drunk Boris Yeltsin. So I will give you a second. Wasn't that amazing? I just love that video. Um, yeah, that's now the president of Russia, okay? Like, not scary Stalin, not, you know, beating his shoe on the UN saying we were going to bear you, Khrushchev. This dude, like, like, this is so weirdly anticlimactic, but kind of fun, because Gorbachev's reforms could have been reversed. I mean, remember, he's just the premier of the Soviet Union. They have other premiers. You know, it's it's like saying a president's executive orders can't be rescinded. They can be. Just get another president there. However, the Soviet Union itself is gone. So there's no way to reverse anything that he had done. What got rid of the Soviet Union? Reality. Like, it never had the best economy. Um, it never was, you know, it, it, just, it just fell apart. You know, Keenan was right. I mean, as you're going to be reading in Gaddis, like, it's all these actors, all this stuff that kind of makes us come together. And it's something I can't iterate enough is that it no longer seemed that America had nothing to fear. Russia was no longer something to be afraid of. I mean, are you afraid of Boris Yeltsin after watching him? No, he, he's adorable. He, he seems like your drunk uncle. He seems fun. And it's crazy because the fear of Russia had been a hallmark of most people's lives. The baby boomers, who at this time are in their 40s. or not? Sorry, not. Well, yeah, they're in their 40s. Yeah, yeah. Early 40s. For their entire lives, the Russians have been something to be afraid of. They have been an existential threat. And now they no longer have that sword over their head. The Russians no longer need be feared. This is a total change for the United States. And there's a sense that the U.S. has no more real bearings after the, the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War had been the centerpiece of U.S policy in general since 1945. Yes, the U.S. had been isolationist before 1945. You know, for most of the U.S. existence, it had been very isolationist. But since 45, that had been the centerpiece of everything, as foreign intervention, sending money and stuff. Some were even saying that this was, quote-unquote, the end of history. Uh, there's a very famous article, look it up if you want, called The End of History saying basically all major conflicts had been resolved. You know, the, the great conflicts between despotism and liberalism, communism, liberalism, whatever you want to call it, had been solved. Liberalism had won. And when I say liberalism, I lowercase l liberalism, not Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. Just like freedom had won, if you will. You know, authoritarianism had lost. The communists had lost. Freedom had won. That's the end of it. No more human conflicts are ever going to happen. We're never going to have any more world wars because these type of, it's not sustainable. Uh, future and the rest of human existence would be based around things like economics and solving consumer demands, uh, environmentalism, and technology. And in a sense, it's kind of 
accurate. I mean, does it happen? I will give that a solid maybe. I mean, all four of those things I've talked about, the economy, consumer demand, environmentalism, and technology, those have been hallmarks of the world since the Cold War ended. Since 1990, well, 1991, you know, Cold War ends. Since 92, all four of those things, consumer demand, the economy, we're going through that, um, environmentalism, that's still definitely a watchword, and uh, technology and, and the crises that might come up with it, that's going to be the main threats. I mean, even right now, we're going through a worldwide pandemic with the coronavirus, which, you know, I'm, I'm not saying the coronavirus is good. Do not misunderstand me. Coronavirus sucks. I mean, I'd much rather be telling you all this in person than sitting on my chair with my Dotson kind of leering at me. But the coronavirus isn't a war. It's not a personified enemy. It's not like these are the bad people that make the coronavirus. It's just a threat. It just is. And this type of conflict, the idea that we don't have these existential threats anymore, it seems to take climb. Now, like I said, it's a solid maybe. We could argue, in fact, I wouldn't mind you arguing, like, you know, are there conflicts since the Cold War? You know, do we really have enemies? Are we ever going to have a world war, that sort of thing? And we might talk about that later. Uh, there are still conflicts. If you go over one more, you're going to see the conflict, which kind of changes everything. Not really changes everything, but it's a different type of conflict. That would be the war in Iraq. Now, throughout the 80s, if you go over one more, there had been a war between Iraq and Iran. Uh, it began in 1980 and ended in 1988. So pretty much throughout Reagan's presidency, Iran and Iraq were at war with each other. Uh, various reasons I'm not going to get into. Um Maybe one day I'll do a podcast about the Middle East, but it's going to be like an eight-hour-long podcast. It wouldn't bore you because the Middle East is fascinating, but it's it's kind of complex to understand all the different idiosyncrasies there. Uh, just know that the Middle East is a very, very conflicted place, and there's a lot of things at play there. So Iran and Iraq had been at war with each other for quite a while. Uh, Reagan is theoretically neutral in all of this. Now, as time goes on, he seems to favor Iraq a little bit more, uh, mainly because Iran starts to be winning, and also it comes out that Reagan had been illegally selling stuff to the Iranians. Now, Iran responds to the U.S. kind of favoring Iraq by seizing oil tankers. Um, that's something you definitely need to understand in this time period. Is that oil, well, not in this time period, all the time, oil is a major concern there. That's the main part of the economy in these areas is oil, uh, international oil exports. And so Iran responds to this by kind of taking over, trying to take over Kuwaiti, uh, Kuwaiti oil tankers. Please go over one more. Please go over one more to see a map. If you understand this map, you're going to understand what's going on. All right. I want you to notice four countries. These are the main thing I want you to notice. I want you to see Iran. Iran's nice, nice right there in the center. There's Tehran at the top. Okay. There's Iraq right next door to it. There's Saudi Arabia kind of southwest of Iran. And right in the middle of all is Kuwait. All right, see Kuwait there. Now, Kuwait is a major oil exporting country. They've had a lot of oil. They're right on the Persian Gulf. Iran's barely, sorry, Iraq is barely on the Persian Gulf. Iran's extensively on the Persian Gulf. And Saudi Arabia are extensively on the Persian Gulf. Now, Iran is trying to seize Kuwaiti oil tankers. Kuwaiti is an emirate. It's very wealthy. It's very wealthy. It has some of the most plum oil fields. Now, Iran is seizing these oil tankers mainly to get more money, get more resources. They fear that 
the uh, U.S. is unfairly supporting Iraq. Uh, the U.S. is getting giving supplies and stuff to Iraq. Uh, the U.S. responds. Reagan responds by this is this is actually kind of a tricky. I, I don't know. It's kind of a neat little trick. Uh, Reagan responds by re-registering Kuwaiti oil tankers under the name of the U.S. So Iran is not seizing Kuwaiti oil tankers. They're seizing American oil tankers. And that would be an act of war. This kind of skirmishy proxy conflict goes on until 1988, wherein Iran and Iraq sign a ceasefire. Uh, this ends the war between Iran and Iraq. This also ends kind of the skirmishy, sabery, rattly stuff between the U.S. and Iran. Now, this seems all good and hunky-dory, except for the fact that wars cost money. And Iraq is broke. Baroque, baroque. Iraq desperately needs revenue. Iraq is led in this time, if you go over one more, by Saddam Hussein. Uh, that's an older picture of Saddam Hussein. A more recent picture, I should say. Um, that looks like him during the Second Gulf War. Uh, he's younger this time period. Uh, Saddam Hussein had been the leader of Iraq for quite a while. Uh, a little bit of backstory about Iraq. Iraq is not a naturally occurring country. That sounds weird. Uh, Iraq's borders, shall we say, are not something that the Iraqi people got on together. In fact, the term Iraqi people is weird. Iraq as a country was kind of devised by the British. Uh, pretty much there are three tribes who do not like each other. And basically the British kind of drew some lines so that they'd make sure they had some oil fields that were sustainable. And that became the country of Iraq. Um, Saddam Hussein comes from one of these groups. And, um, yeah, I'm not going to get into all the different groups, but, you know, the Kurds are one of them. Anywho, Saddam leads one of these groups. He comes into power in, like, the 50s and 60s, actually with U.S. help. He does get U.S. aid from time to time. However, uh, the U.S. is not interested in giving aid anymore. Remember, the Iraq-Iran war is over, and the Soviet Union is not looking that great, you know? Uh, so there's really no need to give Iraq aid. So... Saddam Hussein needs money. Uh, by the way, another fun fact about Saddam Hussein, uh, back in the 70s, before the conflict between Iraq and Iran began, he gave some money to a church in Detroit. Um, Michigan has a lot of Iraqi immigrants for reasons. I, I, I can't get into exactly why, but it just does. Basically, some church needed money. Saddam Hussein wrote a check for $200,000. In response, this, the city of Detroit was so thankful, they gave him a key to the city of Detroit. So... That's right. Saddam Hussein has a key to the city of Detroit. I don't... That'd be one artifact I'd love to touch. I would love to find out who's got Saddam Hussein's key to the city of Detroit. I would love to have it. That'd be something I'd love to have. So if you go back to the map, you'll see that Saddam is looking at Kuwait. Because Kuwait is right next to Iraq. And also, a lot of Iraqis feel that Kuwait is not a legitimate country. Uh, in 1961, the British had cut away, not cut away, but remember the British were control of this. Uh, they gave Kuwait to the Al-Sabah family, uh, pretty much in a move to weaken Iraq. Uh, the British didn't like the idea of Iraq being too strong. That's, that's a major issue going on there. And so basically, the Iraqi people felt, and Saddam is one of them, felt that Kuwait should not have existed. It was not legitimate. It was something the British had no rights giving away. But remember, Britain had kind of made the borders of modern Iraq. And so Saddam starts talking about invading Kuwait. In fact, he, he's, he doesn't do it yet, but he's talking about it. Now, 
U.S. responds first with diplomatic measures. They try to tell Iraq, you know, please don't invade Kuwait. We're not going to have that happen. Uh, Saddam does indeed invade Kuwait in August of 1991. Now, this actually does surprise Kuwait. Sorry, of course it surprises Kuwait. They're like, oh my God, we're, we're captured. Sorry, Bush. Bush is surprised by this. Now, the fear in of itself is not the Kuwait, okay? If Iraq takes Kuwait, that's not that terrible, but it's almost a domino theory comes back. The real fear is if Iraq goes into Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia, as you see south of that, that's a major country. It's the major oil producer. Uh, No country in the world has as many oil fields as Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia has nationalized their um, oil production. They did that a long time ago, actually, uh, ABCO. And it's not a publicly traded company, but if it were, it would be the biggest company in the world. Uh, Several trillion dollars are in Saudi Arabia when it comes to oil. It's, It's ridiculous how much oil they have. And there is fear that if Saddam somehow got control of Iraqi uh, of Saudi oil, uh, there'd be no end to the amount of mischief he could he could cause. Um, they're not really a fear of like a, another Hitler or something like that, even though he does have the mustache, another nice mustache. Uh, the main fear, though, is actually Saddam has a much better mustache than Hitler. Um, it, there is a fear that you know what, we're going to have a strong power in the, con- in, the in the area. And the idea of a strong air power is not too comforting to a lot of folks. And Bush also wants to test what he calls the new world order of what conflict is going to look like without the Soviets, who aren't totally gone, but they might as well be. You know, what is a war going to look like without two superpowers? You know, what is the U.S. going to do? Uh, So Bush goes to the U.N. to get international support. He's able to get it. Uh, the other thing that's important, I know we're sticking this map for a while, but if you understand this map, you're going to understand a lot about what's going on. He is able to get the Saudis, all right, the Saudi family who controls Saudi Arabia, to open up their country as a staging ground for the U.S. This is a major, major, major thing. Because, all right, I have to get into it. The holiest sites in Islam are in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Both Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia. All Muslims are expected at some point in their lives uh, to take the Hajj to Mecca and and Medina, and well, Hajj to Mecca, but you go to Medina too. They're both holy sites. All Muslims everywhere have to go there. Uh, The Saudi family is able to come into power by an alliance with with some of the clerics, some of the more hardline clerics, saying that they're the defenders of of Islam, they're the defenders of all Muslims, the thing is, if Saudi Arabia is to allow themselves to be a staging ground for the U.S. Uh, response, they're allowing a ton of infidels into their country. Uh, now, the, the, the sites will not be at Mecca or Medina. They'll be closer to you know, Kuwait, obviously. But still, this is potentially dangerous for the Saudi monarchy. I remember the Saudi monarchy is only able to come into power. The Saudi family is able to come here by making an alliance saying that we're hardcore Muslims, even though there's a lot of evidence that they're not very good Muslims, they might just be nominal Muslims, and they have to make alliances with the clerics. Uh, There's also some fear that maybe Iraq might go towards Israel. That's probably not going to happen. I should also mention for modern-day history, um, the Saudis and Iran have been having a long-term conflict, a long-term Cold War for quite a while, um, everybody's afraid that the Arab countries might nuke Israel. They shouldn't be. 
if Iran or Saudi Arabia ever got nukes, well, if Iran ever got nukes, they would bomb Saudi Arabia. They would do that almost instantly. So, anyway. Uh, it's a, the war itself is actually pretty quick and quiet. Well, not quiet. I mean, people do die. It's a, it's a war, for God's sake. But um, it's pretty quick. There's extensive bombings. Um, Bush doesn't want to go in without uh, making sure that the ground... Bush doesn't want to make, go in with ground forces until he knows like the lands would soften up. There's an extensive five-week bombing period. Um, Iraq responds to this by sending Scud missiles to Israel. They send missiles to Israel. Uh, this is actually an exercise of restraint for Israel. Uh, Israel is kept out of this conflict. Uh, Israel is told by the U.S. and the international community, don't get involved in this. Because, first of all, I mean, if the Saudis let Israelis stage an invasion against Muslims, good God, that would that that is just bad PR for the Saudis. Also, they don't want this to become a proxy conflict of the Arab-Israeli struggle. Um, I guess that'll be another eight-hour podcast I have to do explaining this whole Israel-Arab conflict. The main thing I want you to know about that, though, is it's not that old. Uh, Jews and Arabs, Jews and Muslims, have not hated each other for you know thousands of years. It's been like maybe a hundred, if that. Still, uh, the land invasion lasts for only five days. If you go over to Desert Storm, it literally lasts five days. Uh, the U.S. does not press into Baghdad. There is talk of actually going into Baghdad, actually getting rid of Saddam. The U.S. declines to do it. Uh, a couple reasons. Number one, the, inv- the uh, goal of this was basically to stop the invasion of Kuwait. You know That, that is what Bush is able to get the U.N.'s uh, help for. He's able to justify the war by saying, hey, we're just trying to get the Iraqis out of Kuwait. Also, I should say this was an undeclared war, and uh, I don't have the time to get into the ramifications of that, but... Basically, the president can now get more involved with conflicts without congressional help or congressional approval. The other thing, and this is ironic, there is fear that removing Saddam and occupying Baghdad would cause the U.S. to remain in a very hostile country for a very long time. Although Saddam is not very nice or popular, he's about the only thing keeping the country together. Because, as you recall, it's not a naturally occurring country. It's just really, ugh. Still, the U.S. had won the war. All right, the U.S. had won the war, and it's kind of seemingly thrown off the, I don't know what to call it, malaise, but kind of the, the stigma of Vietnam. Remember, the U.S. had lost Vietnam. The U.S. was not doing great in any of the other conflicts. The U.S. has now won a war. They overwhelmed the Iraqis. They didn't have to use nuclear weapons. Uh, this was known as the CNN or the video game war. I should mention CNN really comes into play in this. That's another change in technology. Um it makes the war seem very distant. You know, you're just watching these smart missiles, like bullseyeing targets from like, you know, airplanes far, far away, computers and radar and stuff like that, or like satellites are like pinging onto targets almost instantaneously. It seems very, very remote. The U.S. loses about like 500 soldiers total in Desert Storm. Uh, the Iraqis lose like several, I mean, numbers are always hard to come out of warfare. I'd say 10, 50,000, I'd say 50,000 is about a high number for it. If you go over one more slide, you will see that Bush is insanely popular. And it seems that he's poised to win early, early, early re-election. Um, which shows Republican dominance. This would be 16 straight years of one party being in charge of the White House. That hadn't really happened uh, since Roosevelt. And, you know, that's, that was the Great Depression, World War II. It showed that maybe the Democrats are dead. Now, that's not to happen. Uh, what does happen is a recession. A recession happens. We'll talk about the recession later on. 
Uh, Bush is blamed for the recession. It's a pretty bad recession. And by 1992, which is only a year after the Gulf War, it's clear that the country's moved on. Uh, the country is going to vote for somebody else. And even though the, people are happy about the end of the Cold War, it's moved on kind of quickly. So if you go to one more slide, what of the Cold War? Um, here's a picture of Boris Yeltsin with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin becomes president of Russia after Yeltsin, and he's been the only president since. So for like 20 years, it's been Putin in charge of Russia. We'll talk about Putin later on. But what to say of the Cold War? How do you end the Cold War? Well, you're going to be talking about a lot of it because of Gaddis. Um, the fact that it's anticlimactic might be signs of restraint. You know, George, Bo George H.W. Bush, for his faults, he is a very even-keeled customer. I would say he showed a lot of restraint. Now, who should get credit for ending the Cold War? You know, Gaddis puts a lot of, uh, a lot of it on Reagan, puts a lot of it on Gorbachev. Um, I, this is not a political statement, but I think Bush has something to do with it too. The fact that he's able to do it so even handed throughout, uh, you know, the things like the Berlin wall falling, you know, a more radical president might've upset the Soviet balance might've had a harder line stance for it. I'm not saying Bush should get credit for the cold war, but I, I say, you know, I mean, it did happen under his presidency. And the other question is, does the cold war even end? I mean, to this day, I mean, right, right as I'm saying this, there is talk of, you know, stuff about what are the Soviets, not the Soviets, the Soviets aren't around, but, you know, the Russians are interfering with the election in 2016. They're possibly doing that, all these disinformation campaigns. You know, is Trump uh, Putin's puppet? All sorts like that. I mean, we're still having some of the same animosities, some of the same rhetoric being used. Now, is it because the conflict never ended or because the Cold War had such a stranglehold on the American imagination? Those are the terms we use. Now, that might be something to do with it. Uh, I mean, I'll let y'all argue that. But the fact that the Cold War set the rhetoric, it set the language, it set the tone. You know, baby boomers. Uh, Donald Trump is a prototypical baby boomer. I mean, you know, baby boomers are now a majority of the population. Not a majority of the population, sorry. Uh, they're they're older now, and pretty much their entire lives have been framed around Russia being a bad thing, having an existential crisis, having a sword over one's head. Now, if the sword doesn't exist, I mean, is it is it gone? Is everything going to be peaceful? Is it indeed the end of history? Well, that's for y'all to discuss, not me. I just tell y'all the facts, and I want y'all to think them up. So with that, um, yeah, um. Remember, we have a bit of a break for this one. You're not responsible for uh, doing the... Um, I'm not going to make the uh, the form due until next week. Likewise, the reading is done next week as well. So y'all get some time to do this. I want y'all to kind of linger. Let's really think about these sort of questions. Whoever's discussion leader for this one, the discussion leaders, uh, think about not just Gaddis, but the Cold War in general. You know, think about how the... How it impacts, you know, how do major events, even when they're over, impact one's language, impact the way that you think about something? I mean, for instance, I mean, we're in the middle of corona stuff, and I will assure you, one day this quarantine will end. For some of you, um, y'all are going to graduate, and y'all aren't going to be at Nichols anymore. But for others of you, you're going to have me in another class. But because of this, but even though we're not in quarantine anymore, it's going to change the way that we do class. It's going to change the way we talk about stuff. You know, even though the threat of the virus is over, it's going to change the country in some way or another. 
I mean, 9-11, you know, that, we'll be talking about that near probably the last week of class. September 11th happened. It was one attack, but it totally changed how we do airline security, how we talk about stuff. It changes the rhetoric. The Cold War is another one of those. And I want you to think about that. Think about it in practical terms. Maybe talk to your parents who are probably, you know, Gen Xers or maybe some of y'all boomer parents. You know, talk to, ask them if they ever watched the movie of the day after when they were kids. I remember my siblings watched it. I was a little too young for it. But it was a story in the late 80s about nuclear war. And it scared the crap out of people. So seriously, I, I want you to take this time out. Maybe those of you who are listening who aren't necessarily members, just subscribers to the podcast. Think about how the Cold War impacted your childhood, how it impacted your formative years, so that even 30 years later, you know, it's been 30 years since the end of the Cold War, we're still dealing with the ramifications and we're still dealing with the rhetoric. I mean, me personally, uh, I, I remember... I remember when the, uh, I was born in 84. So when, uh, when the Berlin Wall fell, I was fairly small. I, I vaguely remember it. But I remember the Soviet Union falling much more clearly. I remember, you know, them rolling out the Russian flag. I remember, you know, Gorbachev resigning. I remember this feeling that, well, now we're going to have, you know, McDonald's in Russia, and Russia is now our friend, and it's all over. And Russia wasn't something that I grew up fearing, but everybody around me did like my parents definitely were wary of russia my siblings you know grew up with you know, the threat of nuclear war that wasn't something i necessarily experienced and when we get into the 90s i'll probably mention that that's something that makes the 90s for me at least rather idyllic because there really wasn't an existential threat for, for through most of my childhood i mean 9-11 happened my senior year of high school so like my first year of school was 19, 1991 was my first year of first grade. Uh, I started school in, you know, first grade in 1990. And, uh, you know, 1991 was my, into my first year of first grade. And second grade was, you know, when the Syrian fell. So pretty much throughout my entire schooling, you know, elementary school, middle school, and high school, there was no existential threat to the United States security. I mean, yeah, we talked about, you know, Somalia, or we talked about Bosnia, which we'll get into the 90s, but it wasn't anything like the threat of the Russians. And so when you get to 9-11, like, that totally changes the way I view stuff, and I don't know, just just be thinking about that. I, I know I'm kind of riffing for a while, and maybe I'll delete this, but, you know, maybe I'll keep it. Anyway, so with that, this is Dr. Telly. Um, y'all have a good spring break, too. Um, I'm not going to make y'all do a podcast or anything over spring break. Uh, take the time to work on your uh, Gaddis book. You get an extra week to deal with Gaddis. Uh, watch the videos. You don't have to use the videos for your Cold War book. Um, Material Girl is supposed to be for the 80s, but it actually came out under Bush's presidency, so that's Madonna. The Fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, the Gulf War News, just watch that. You know, you already had to watch Drunk Boris Yeltsin. Uh, your reading is just basically finishing Gaddis, but really dwell upon this. Like, really let this ruminate. I, I think you're going to do an excellent job. Um, but yeah, have a good spring break. Make sure you take care of your families, take care of each other. Um, you know, maybe I'll do a forum just asking how everybody's doing. So kind of an informal, you know, maybe I'll do that. Y'all responded pretty well to the Reagan forum. Maybe I'll do that. So with that, Dr. Telly, have a good one. I miss y'all. I miss y'all, by the way. I do miss y'all. Yeah. Podcasts are fun, but I do miss seeing y'all, y'all's silly faces in class sometimes and doing junk. So maybe when it's all over, we get pizza or something. Maybe not. Uh, well, well, I'll try. You know what? When it's all over, come see me. We'll go out for pizza. In Thibodeau, like at the, at the calf. I'm not paying for your pizza. But I'll, I'll pay for your pizza. It's fine.
All right, this is it. Dr. Telly, have a good one. Bye.